Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thanks for joining us for this ASHP Advantage Podcast. We are sitting down with content matter experts to extend that conversation on accelerating the adoption of biosimilars in healthcare. My name is Barbara Nussbaum, and I'm pleased to serve as your moderator. I'm the Vice President for Research and Education with the ASHP Foundation. I had the pleasure to convene experts and steward this very important project. I'm joined today by Russell Cohen, who is a board-certified gastroenterologist and a professor of medicine at the Pritzker School of Medicine at the University of Chicago. Laura Polanski, who is the Clinical Coordinator for Formulary and Clinical Programs at Sutter Health in California and Lisa Seville, who is the Director for Medical Benefit Drug Management at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan. All three were members of the steering committee for a project and subsequent report to accelerate the adoption of biosimilars more broadly. The report and webinar are available at ashpadvantage.com slash adoptbiosimilars. This project and podcast episode is sponsored by Amgen. This podcast is for informational purposes only and not approved for continuing education credit. Thanks again for joining us and let's get started with our conversation. As you are aware, the adoption of biosimilars in the US has been a little bit slower than expected. And it's been attributed to various barriers, including those related to awareness, prescriber and patient concerns, limited labeling allowances for some indications, that's a mouthful, and lack of incentives to switch. So you're also aware that there's many more to come just around the corner. So let's talk about how we're prepared and how we're preparing for it. To support the adoption of biosimilars in a range of therapeutic areas, ASHP and the ASHP Foundation engaged a group of stakeholders, these are three of them, in a coordinated initiative designed to develop a deeper understanding of challenges and opportunities and identify strategies learned from those early adopters of biosimilars. In addition, the project sought to explore pharmacists' roles to stimulate implementation of biosimilars in a range of practice settings and therapeutic areas. So let's move on to the conversation. That's why we're all here today. So top of mind during this project was those we care for, our patients, just like it is every day. So one of the first questions was, or is, how can providers introduce and explain biosimilars to their patients? I'm going to ask Russ if you can start this conversation. Sure. Thanks, Barbara, and uh, welcome, everybody. You know, I am not just a gastroenterologist, but I'm an IBD specialist, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, and I've been involved in biosimilars, actually first in Europe and then in the U.S. for many, many years. So my experience directly has been with the biosimilars for treatment of Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, and I think that there are important differences which we'll discuss as far as bringing the patient into the discussion. So when the first biosimilar that was available were the infliximab, the Remicade biosimilars, um, which was given IV. And I told the patients back then what I tell them now. I say though, but it turns out that the medicine Remicade is a branded name. It's, it was either going off patent or is off patent. So there are FDA approved biosimilars, which is made by different companies of infliximab. I told them that these are all tested and approved by the FDA and studies people who were on the brand name Remicade were switched to the biosimilar or vice versa. And there was essentially no difference between that. Basically, your insurance company may have a contract with one of those companies. So when we talk about Remicade, you may actually end up getting one of the FDA approved biosimilars, which is fine. There should be no difference in how well the drug works or any other safety issues at all. 
So that's very helpful for IV biosimilars. But as you probably all know, Humira or Adalimumab will be actually having its first biosimilars starting in early 2023. And while the conversation is about the same, I do point out actually, now to me, when they ask, they say, well, will the injector be the same? They actually mentioned that too. And I explained, well, you know, the same first part of the story about the biosimilar, I was FDA approved, blah, blah, blah. But I said, well, you know, each of the injectors that is made is, is somewhat proprietary and uh, that they are tested in patients and and part of the tests include whether the patient's acceptance of it is not going to be identical, but that the ones that are coming to market should be fine. Um, and if there's a problem, we'll address it then. So I, I think it's important to be confident when you're telling the patients what is essentially the truth, that the therapies are FDA approved, that they have been tested in patients on the originated drug were switched or even de novo, and there really shouldn't be expected to be any difference in safety of it immunogenicity between them all. So the issue though about the injectors is something that'd be interesting to see what do the rest of the panel think, because I'm the provider. How are you going to approach that if you happen to select a Humira biosimilar and there's an injector issue? Yeah, it's a very good question, uh, Dr. Cohen. I think that we have to approach this very delicately with the patients. And once the injector does come out, We'll have to assess that situation ad hoc or on a case-by-case basis because that could be a potential for patients that the injector may be different. And I know that's concerning. I think the approach for explaining biosimilars to patient needs to be different depending if the patient has already been on therapy or if this is new to therapy for that patient. I think that becomes an extreme important piece of the pie. For new starts, really this is not a difficult conversation. There is data to support the biosimilars, as you've stated. The data has shown efficacy and safety, and many patients that have been treated have been treated successfully, and they're not really knowing what the injector used to be because they never had the therapy before. So I think that's the least challenging part or portion of the conversation. I think the more challenging conversation is the one, to your point, the one that already had the medication, and um, this needs to be a more delicate approach in these patients to discuss the differences, the similarities, the challenges that may arise, but ultimately that the biosimilar is the same product as the branded product or or highly similar to the branded product with regards to efficacy and safety. The conversation would be needing to be very supportive for the transition and ensuring that the therapy would continue to work in the same way identifying the differences and maybe working through those together as a patient-doctor relationship. This doctors are very trusted by their patients. And so that would be a very critical conversation where the patient needs to really believe in the therapy and the change that the possibility for failure is very low in this case. So I think that's very imperative for these patients. Yeah, I, I think Add on to that, I think where Lisa um, ended, that conversation needs to be done between the provider and the patient. There's actually interesting literature out there and specific to infliximab out of uh, Boston Medical Center from just from a few years ago, where they tried doing initially the conversion, having the pharmacist or the patient's nurse to have the conversation with the patient and the success rate for conversion was not nearly as good as the one where the provider talked to the patient. So absolutely, um, the provider's input 
that trust, that one-on-one -on -one relationship between the provider and the patient is absolutely key, especially when we're dealing with patients who are commonly or have already been on a particular product. So that was one part that I wanted to add. The other piece I wanted to just address the injector, I think absolutely excellent point, something that we have not previously considered because with Humira, it's going to be really the first biosimilar that the patient will be doing his or herself. What comes to mind for me is what we do with our insulin products, right? Insulin products have various types of proprietary pens. And if the insurance covers Having a patient inject with a pen versus trying to deal with a vial is a, a much better situation. So in that particular case, again, that education is key. In the area, of course, of diabetes, there's usually, you know, there's large clinics, there's diabetes educators, there's already a process to convert the patient as needed. So in this particular case, I think thinking about developing that process in advance is going to be very much important in the future. So thank you for bringing that up. I actually have not considered that. Thank you for that part of the discussion. I'm, I'm curious, you know, we crafted it as what's the provider's role. And I'm wondering from the health system and or the payer perspective, um, Lisa, how are you preparing for this to help engage, right, the patient and the providers? Yeah, great question. We have multiple points where we engage with providers. We reach out to our provider community. We send letters or flyers with regards to biosimilar. We started this, again, as Dr. Cohen alluded to before, in the early stages when Inflectra, Remicade were coming out to market, and we started that education piece. I think now, having so many biosimilars on the market, I think that conversation is becoming more collaborative. I think uh, physicians are very willing to uh, embrace biosimilars. And so I see this as more of a collaborative uh, participation amongst the payer and the provider. Thanks, Lisa. I appreciate that. You know, the next two questions were actually submitted during our webinar, and we as a group thought they would be good to discuss here during the podcast. The first one is payers are, you know, updating and changing their formularies, right? We know that. And they're also updating and changing the preferred biosimilar. We'd like to hear from the panel, what's your perspective or any strategies that you are using or maybe strategies you used in the past that you think will be effective as we go forward? Lisa, I'd like you to go ahead and start our conversation. Sure will. So at Blue Cross Blue Shield, we have a very robust approach on how we choose, update, or change our biosimilar preference. We understand that making a choice on which drug to select as preferred is important, and the risk of changing that decision, whether it be six months, 12 months, 18 months from that time, that would be a huge cause for concern, you know, for many, including patients, providers, health systems, and the like. Even in our own area, that would be a challenge for us to continue to switch just because of the administrative burden that it would cause for that big change to occur. So we don't like switch preferred products oftentimes, which is part of the ongoing early discussions that we have so that our initial decisions made are really robust and, and sound. I get that there this landscape is forever changing. And so sometimes it's not ideal and it can't be done, but we really try to make the best 
sound decision the first time around. We look at lots of factors to do so when we're choosing the medications that we want on our preferred formulary, so to speak, on the medical side, because a majority of these are on the medical side to date. So we consider price, access, administration, formulation. This is just to name a few. We also engage heavily with our providers in the area of practice. So when Remicade came out with a biosimilar, well, when there was a biosimilar came out for Remicade, you know, we really looked at the insight from our gastros and the like so that we could get their point of view of what their concerns were. What can we address up front rather than, you know, going back as an afterthought once the products are already selected? That's been um, a really key part of our approach. And so we'll continue to do that as new products come to market. We look at patient assistant programs and discounts offered to patients so that we can take those into consideration and ensure that we are lowering the total medication costs for all patients so that we don't risk a higher out-of-pocket for these members um, once we make our choice. Sometimes I like to share an example because it helps the audience better understand, or at least it helps me better understand the approach. So one good example I can share is when Nulasta came out had biosimilars come out to the market. Um, At the time we were making this decision, we were in the thick of COVID. Um, We were challenged with this pandemic. And at the time, also, if you recall, OnPro, the OnPro device was heavily used by patients and OnPro, the new last OnPro device does not have a biosimilar. So that's an on-body device that is applied typically to the patient's arm and administers the medication 24 to 27 hours after the application of the product is placed on the patient. And we saw that our market share of this product was very high. Um, We can understand that this is a convenient product for patients. They don't want to come back to the hospital, especially in the thick of a COVID pandemic. So we evaluated all of this and took that all into consideration to make the best approach. So when we chose the selected preferred products, we left the Nulasta OnPro device on our preferred product therapy list because of this reason. We did go back and look at, you know, provider satisfaction, member satisfaction, and it was very high in this space because of that decision that we made. And there was little disruption to the space because of that reason. So to me, that's a win-win situation. And that's the sort of decision-making that we make when we're applying biosimilar preference to at least our formulary recommendations. Thanks, Lisa. I think I can sort of springboard from there. First of all, truly appreciate always the partnership with third-party payers in order to come up with the best decision for our patient population. You're right. The OnPro product was incredibly important during the pandemic. And while it is, generally speaking, not formulary for us, we actually on purpose added it to formulary during that period of time. And we're very gratified that the third-party payers, many of them, not all, but many followed suit, similar to what Blue Shield Blue Cross did, your company, and and allowed for OnPro to be used. After the pandemic sort of decreased quite a bit, we went back to a more restricted use of OnPro just because the biosimilar availability for the Standard PEG product is just such a um, tremendous, um, has such a tremendous cost advantage for everybody, not only for the health system, but really often for the patient as well in terms of -of out-of-pocket costs. 
Also, in terms of switching from reference to biosimilars or even biosimilars to biosimilars, what our health system does is we, on quarterly basis, keep track of what is going on with our main um, six third-party payers for our patient population within the setter footprint. Something that changes often. So staying on top of it, being vigilant. Most of the information, if um, one really spends some time looking at it, partnering with your managed care teams, they can really help you understand the different um, websites from different third-party payers to uh, really be very clear um, which products are covered, which are step, step therapy. And by the way, for commercial versus Medicare Advantage plans, those are not always the same. So it really requires some time and it's worthwhile time to really dig into that. We do this on quarterly basis and then make a decision whether or not we need to move to a different product. For us, we're a large system. We make a commitment not to move, at least for financial reasons, in any more often than nine to 12 months, just because it takes us about three months to to implement after the decision is made. However, sometimes the decision is kind of forced because um, a particular product, and again, recently happened with our preferred PEG product, um, lost about two thirds of the insurance coverage that we needed. So we needed to move. And so for us, um, the preferred product that we had maybe was less expensive. We don't always make the decision for the preferred product based on financials, uh, financial, finance only. We make that decision based on multiple factors. Sometimes the insurance, our most common insurance is just to not cover what we would like to have covered. And we either have to move from what we currently have, or we just don't pick what we ideally would like to pick. Anything from you, Dr. Cohen? Sure. You know, I think that um, everything is very fascinating conversation, but keep in mind what you guys talked about at the beginning. This, uh, with the Adeline and the Humira, this is patient self-administered. Um, Lisa, you mentioned, well, up to the provider to teach the patient. We're not teaching the patient, okay? We don't teach the patient now. Um, the Abby has nurse ambassadors. They teach the patient how to do it. And we would we would expect that the biosimilar companies would provide a service where they teach the patient how to use their product. Or if they're not, then the insurers do. You know, I mean, the doctors, we don't have time to have the patient come in just to tell them, oh, this is how you're going to use a new thing. We won't even know how to use it. You know, we were in the clinical trials, so my nurses all knew how to use the original injectors for the pre-filled syringes for Humira and for the other biologics that we use in IBD, and then the pens. We were in the trials, but people in the community, their nurses didn't didn't know how to do that, so it, it was actually through them. So, and keeping in mind then, don't be changing every nine to twelve months, because then all of a sudden you're saying to a patient, "Oh, now you're gonna have to learn a new injector. Now you're gonna have to learn a new injector. Now you're gonna have to learn a new injector." It's very different for injectables than the infusibles if it's a patient-administered injectable. And I really think everyone listening to this podcast should consider that it's just not another biosimilar. You're doing a patient-self-administered biosimilar where there's going to be different devices. The newer device may be better. I mean, you know, maybe love, love it. That's, ha- that's happened before. Um, patients like the Stellara injection device better than the Humira pre-filled syringe. So, you know, it depends. But keep in mind 
that if you're going to be switching, 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 patients are going to be complaining to us and, and your providers are going to provide, are going to prescribe a medicine that doesn't come in a biosimilar so they don't have to deal with it. I would also add, and this is kind of interesting, um, my, we don't have a large um, outpatient pharmacy business, if you will, but I think a big piece here and an opportunity for pharmacy is to be part of that educational stream. You know, this can be the first one that's coming. Um, let's see, how, you know, what happens now if the insurance says, okay, this, this product is not covered. Most likely they would need to reach out to the provider, switch the patient, but then what happens, right? Then what happens? Who educates? Can pharmacy be involved? Um, you know, they're incredibly busy, yet it's an opportunity. Yeah, I'm also looking forward to see how this all is going to play out. Um, fascinating. Yeah, it's clear it's going to get more complicated, right? And hopefully what we have learned, right? And that's what we saw in this report. There are some strategies that we've learned that that do apply. But what we heard as well as a group, um, things are going to have to be customized, right? You talked a little bit about the new starts versus when you are, are converting somebody. But then when you think about somebody who is going to be in the rheumatology, right, on a, who's being treated for something for rheumatology or GI, or it's, it's going to get a little bit more complicated. And that collaboration amongst key stakeholders is going to be very key. Uh, that open communication is going to be very important as we go through the complexities of this. We also heard that, Dr. Russ, you said, you know, there's not a lot of time in that office, right, in that office time. So the development of kind of resources, you know, that are customized to that product are going to be, be very important that can be easily kind of incorporated into that engagement opportunity is going to be a key step as well. I think that um, what we heard through this project is what you all talked about. The last question was before you adopted new biosimilars into your formulary, what analyses? But you all spoke about those already, um, kind of looking at your primary payers, right? Looking at the total cost of care, Lisa, you mentioned, considering what patient assistance programs are out there as well um, in that whole analysis, tracking the usage. Are there other analyses you are doing, whether you're looking at preferred, whether you're looking to add one um, that you're doing? Um, that you would advise kind of thinking ahead, right? When the human, all these self-injectables are out. Yeah. So Barbara, I think for the most part, we've discussed sort of first switches, but I would submit that the analysis, and at least that's what we try to do within Sutter, and that would be my recommendation, is the analysis that is done at the initial, the initial switch. It's the analysis that needs to be done continuously. For us, we do this on now on quarterly basis because things do change. The insurance third-party payer changes, financial incentives change, reimbursement, that's one of the pieces we haven't talked about yet, but that needs to be looked at. Lisa mentioned any type of patient assistance. And we do, we look at this literally on quarterly basis for each and every one of our biosimilars. I know there was a question that we didn't quite get to during the webinar that um, asked specifically the financial analysis piece, I can speak to that, what we do, again, for us on quarterly basis, and something that probably can be done in, you know, for an individual facility, I'm, I'm going to say, quote, unquote, by hand using an Excel spreadsheet, 
For us, we use Power BI that loads financial data every month. And then based on our purchasing history, the previous month or previous quarter, there is analysis that's done behind the scenes. One of the things, again, for a large system where there might be 340B facilities, non-340B facilities, and their physician clinics, where they have their own financial costs, which vary um, often a lot higher than what even non-340B facility would pay, all of those really needs to be kept track of, and we do. More often than not, we try to keep to a single preferred product trying to not always the least expensive, but trying to, again, cover all the bases in terms of prior authorization, insurance coverage, patient assistance, reimbursement, all of those pieces. However, we do have at least two classes at this point. And as we get more and more, as things get more and more complex, as we get more and more biosimilars, we've talked about customization. Sometimes we have a different preferred product our physician clinics versus 340B because the financial incentive, giving everything else the same, the financial incentive between a 340B facility and a physician's clinic could be tremendously different. So again, customize, stay on top of it on a quarterly basis. That would be my recommendation. Yeah. And I think that's what we do, Laura, as well. We try to monitor and facilitate analysis on a Sometimes it doesn't end up being as quickly as a quarterly basis, but at least half a year or yearly basis, we look at patients that have transitioned back to the brand name, understanding why they may have done so, investigating if there's been you know, increases in dosage, and if so, again, investigating why so, um, and looking at market share and just looking at where the current members are, are at and how many transitioned over to a product versus another product. Um, And so just keeping a close eye on that, looking at that and taking that into consideration in all of our analyses and decision-making. I think that one of the big financial impacts on practices, especially private practices, I'm academic practice, but is the insane amount of time and money spent on prior authorizations. Most practices have to hire one or more full-time person just to handle prior auths, which is absurd. And so in addition to these all, these all should be nearly automatic, should be electronic, where all the criteria are listed. If you were to come out as a provide, as payers and say, well, if you go with this biosimilar, it's, there's no prior auth needed, bingo. Instead of making the patient wait three weeks for authorization for a therapy, they're going to get authorized anyway. That would be very incentivizing to our practice to say, look, Use about similar and and it's and you're in. None of this prior auth baloney. No go back and forth. No faxes that have no return phone numbers. Just get it done and provide to the patient. That would be a huge incentive financially. Yeah, thank you for that. And, and I'm curious: is anyone tracking at this point outcomes for the patients? Um, any adverse events? Anything like that at this point? It maybe in the research, um, Russ, that you were involved in. Or is it one of those things we're going to be doing as we implement? We track that for our therapies, but we really don't anticipate that we'd see a difference with a biosimilar than an originator. Um, Although I guess you could wonder about injection site issues with it injectable being a little bit different, but you really wouldn't expect there to be. I mean, we do, we do track things. We follow it. We haven't broken it down. The only biosimilar right now we have is infliximab biosimilars. Um, and um, really, 
hasn't been um, much interest. I think other groups may have looked at that and haven't found a difference, but we wouldn't expect to. I would say the same. So based on data, we're not expecting it. But I think there is a, a sense of comfort, if you will, when we do implement a new project, either it was initial biosimilar or when we're converting, we do it very carefully and systematically, initially with brand new patients first, maybe three to six months, make sure there's no issues in terms of our, especially if it's a newer biosimilar in terms of any type of unusual reactions. And then again, slowly, systematically by working with providers, we see if we're able to convert current patients to to a new preferred biosimilar. But yeah, definitely, I think we are not expecting it from the FDA point of view based on the data that we have. But I think there's definitely a lot of comfort, I think, on the provider side, on patient side, when we can show that we are tracking and we're not seeing a problem. Terrific. Well, thank you. And I want to thank the faculty for joining us today for this great discussion. To download the report and find out more information on the topic, please visit the website that I mentioned earlier. We hope you enjoy today's conversation and be sure to subscribe to ASHP Podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Thanks again to our faculty. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thanks, Barbara. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.